Dead Bodies is not for the squeamish and is intended for mature audiences. Hello and welcome to Dead Bodies Podcast, Episode 2. Hi, Chanel. Hello. Are you well? I'm so well. Are you well? I am well. Any dead bodies this week? No dead bodies in my actual life. What does Everyone's that mean? remained alive. Oh, okay. Um, but yes, I do have... Are we jumping straight into it? We are. Now, who's going first tonight? Well, I'll let you go first. Okay. I have for you um, what has been described as the most beautiful photograph of a dead body. I hope you don't know the story. Do you know it? Does well, anything come into mind? For those who were listening last week, if you just tuned in <laughs> to episode two, we had a weird photograph, dead body. Yep. Last week, and that I'm continuing me to tears, on with so... that theme, indeed. Um, next week's a bit more gruesome, so I thought I'll, I'll ease in softly nice. to the theme. All right. This is a story about a woman by the name of Evelyn Frances McHale. She was born on September the 20th. There's no need for such specific detail. There's no need to know what day. But Well, it's the year, uh, 1923. So we're going back a little bit for this story. She was born in California. She was one of seven children. She was the second youngest, which means she was probably forgotten because the little ones always get forgotten, don't they? Tell me about it. Mum was just popping. Seven children. How many kids in your family? Well, just myself and my older sister. But imagine the hand-me-downs in that yeah. family. Yeah. Oh, that's a good, very good point. I'm one of three. I'm the middle child, so I'm the forgotten child. Uh, her father's name was Vincent, and he was a banker. And in 1930, he got a job in Washington, so the family all moved there. And uh, he then got a job in New York City, my favourite city that isn't Melbourne in the world. So the whole family moved to a town called Tuckahoe in New York. At the time they moved, Evelyn was only seven years old. Uh, And you know what it's like when you're that age, starting a new school and you've got to make new friends and stuff and you try and fit in. And and what was making it a bit difficult for her as a little girl was that her mother um, was suffering from depression, which at that time was not diagnosed the way it is now. Absolutely. wasn't even recognised mental health problems yeah. back then. Yeah. Women were just locked up for being hysterical um, and things like that. So um, obviously there was no treatment for it in the 1930s. So it led to a lot of troubles in the marriage between uh, – we are getting to a dead body, by the way. There will be one. I'm waiting for it to jump out okay. at any moment. Right. Keep Continue. waiting. Keep waiting. I'm just setting the scene. <laughs> So you can understand. All right. So there were troubles in the marriage because mum was suffering depression. There's seven children and Vincent's working very hard and he's got this new job in New York. He left the family and he moved to St. Louis and he became a stockbroker there. So they divorced and Vincent was awarded custody of the younger children, including Evelyn, which I think also tells us probably how the mother was not coping with the whole situation. So he's got the little kids. So the mother moves back to California and Evelyn is with her dad. And she starts at a new high school. In the yearbook at that high school, it says Evelyn was certainly quiet at times, but she could hold an intelligent conversation about practically any subject. So she's a bright enough kind of girl, but she's, you know, obviously having those challenges of having to start a new life in a new place. 
she graduated and friends knew her as Ebby and she was um, she joined the Women's Army Corps. Her job there was listed as an office machine operator. It sounds, though, as though she didn't like doing military service much because um, after she finished, she burned her uniform. Late 1944, she moved in with her brother and sister-in-law. They were living on Long Island at the time, and why wouldn't you move in with someone living on Long Island? It's one of my dreams to go there. Yeah, I'm picturing it a big mansion. It's probably not, but that's where she went to live. Um, And she got a job as a bookkeeper with an engraving company in New York. Let's go now to New Year's Eve, 1945. She went to a party and she met a guy who lived just near her brother. His name was Barry Rhodes and he'd been a navigator in the army during the war and he was studying engineering in Pennsylvania. So a bit of a catch, nice young man. They started going out and it wasn't long before they became engaged and they were planning to get married in 1947 at Barry's brother's home in New York. Everything going nicely at this point. Wasn't quite the case, though, for Evelyn because she had actually inherited her mother's depression. Yes, she was struggling with that. The summer of 1946, her fiancé's brother got married and Evelyn was one of the bridesmaids there. And after the wedding, she tore off the bridesmaid's dress and she said, I never want to see this again. Um, Barry, her fiancé, said she worried for some silly reason that she was never going to be good enough to be a wife because she'd seen what had become of her parents' marriage. He thought that he'd been able to talk her out of that. Just over a year after that wedding where she was the bridesmaid, so 1947, Evelyn went to visit Barry for his 24th birthday. So they're still only very they're young. so young still. I know. Yeah, yep. people got engaged that age I in know. those days. Yes, I know. Don't so she stayed with him that night. I don't imagine in the same room because that just wasn't done in those days. Not. I'm sure she tied her nighty to her toes. She did. As modest young ladies did in those days. And the next morning she got up at 7 o'clock to catch the train back to New York. I have such suspense about when she's going to die. How do you know it's going to be her? I don't know. I don't know. Stop being the spoiler. (laughs) So Barry says that when he kissed her goodbye that morning, she was happy and just about as normal as any girl could be who's about to get married and excited. Uh, But he said, I don't know what her last words to me were because she had to run for the train. She was in a hurry. About two hours later, Evelyn arrived at Penn Station in New York, which actually isn't there anymore. It was, at the time, it was the big transport hub there. And she went across the street to a place called the Governor Clinton Hotel, where she wrote something on their stationery. Somebody saw her writing. She then walked a couple of blocks, and just before 10.30 in the morning, she bought a ticket to the observation deck on the 86th floor of the Empire State Building. You're getting it's, this is like a train um, coming at you through a tunnel. It really it? is. I thought she was going to get hit by the train. <laughs> no, no. Okay. Uh, ten minutes later, there was a police officer by the name of John Morrissey directing traffic down below, and he noticed a white scarf floating down from the upper floors of the building, and then he heard a loud crash. Evelyn had stepped out onto the parapet and she had jumped. She'd cleared the setbacks of the building and she landed on the roof of a limousine that was parked on 34th Street in the middle of New York. So obviously crowds started to assemble. Uh, The Brooklyn Daily Eagle reported that four noon shoppers on Fifth Avenue were horrified. 
Um, so anyway, when she jumped, standing on the street was a young cab driver. His name is Robert Miles, who was – he also described himself as a photography student. He saw – everyone rushing, what's going on, something's happened. He rushed across the street with his camera and he stood on the footpath just beside the car that Evelyn had landed on and he took a photograph. And that photograph is the one described as the most beautiful, or they they call it the most beautiful suicide. And I don't want to sound for any second like I'm glorifying suicide. We're not doing that. But the picture itself is incredibly beautiful because... She landed on her back on the roof of the car and the roof of the car has collapsed and there's broken glass and there's twisted metal all around her. But she is, it's as though she's just lying down. She is untouched. There's no damage to her body. She's wearing white gloves. She's clutching her pearls. She And, and the way her head is sort of gently turned to the side, it just looks like she's thinking about where she might go shopping next in the day. Isn't that incredible? yeah. Just an absolute quirk of fate that she landed like that. And there's always that notion that people that die in great pain look so grieved and like they have that terrible look on their face. But to hear that she's fallen, how many floors? 86 floors. 86 floors and landed in such, I would never do that. I have no grace. No, no, I'd be all and a mess. Sprawled. Yeah, yeah so it it honestly looks like she's just asleep. It it doesn't look like she's dead. So that photograph um, became incredibly iconic. I'm just looking it up now. Yeah, you can do. You can look it up on our Facebook page, Dead Bodies Podcast. Go find it. Um, it was published as the photo of the week or picture of the week in Life magazine. And it became a pop culture icon. So Andy Warhol actually did some silk screens of it in 1962. There was a couple of bands that used replicas of it on the cover of their albums. Now, um, in the Taylor Swift video of Bad Blood, there's a scene where Taylor Swift is fighting someone in an office in a high-rise building. She's kicked out of the window through the glass and she lands on the roof of a car. It's, It's mimicking this incredibly iconic photograph. And I think David Bowie as well, in 1993, he did a single called Jump, They Say, and that includes a recreation of the image with David Bowie splayed on the top of the car. And it is actually not taken from the way I thought it was in my head. It's actually taken from her head looking down towards her body, whereas I thought it would be above, but there's no way you could be above. No, he was standing at street level. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Look, go to our Facebook page and check it out. It's Dead Bodies Podcast. Now, Evelyn herself, she never actually wanted to become an icon, even though this photo has gone on to become incredibly famous. In fact, she would have been horrified by that because she just wanted to hide away. And she, Barry told reporters at the time that she never, she was worried she would not be a good wife. Um, There were other photos, as I said, of the, of the, um, the scene and the police moving her body out of the way. And there were photos taken from up on the deck and stuff like that. Um, A detective called Frank Murray went up to where she had jumped from and he found her bag uh, and her coat. Her coat had been neatly folded and she'd left it up on the observation deck and there was a note with it. So this must have been what she was writing when she went and sat in the hotel before she went to the Empire State Building and, and her note read, I don't want anyone in or out of my family to see any part of me. Could you destroy my body by cremation? I beg of you and my family, don't have any service for me or remembrance for me. My fiancé asked me to marry him in June. I don't think I would make a good wife for anybody. He's much better off without me. Tell my father I have too many of my mother's tendencies. Isn't that sad? 
And then she's her story's gone on to live yeah. forever. It's the absolute opposite of what she wanted. So her sister had to come along and identify the body, which wasn't difficult because, as you've seen, it wasn't damaged at all. And according to her wishes, she was cremated. There's no grave for her. Because that was what she wanted. She didn't want to be remembered in that way. So just on the Empire State Building, the construction started in around about 1930. Before it had even been completed, one person had jumped to their death. Evelyn was the 12th person to jump from the building and the 6th person to clear all of the setbacks. So, you know, the Empire State, and picture it when you've seen it lit up for various things. I think yes. it was lit up for Australia's yes vote most recently in the colours of the rainbow, wasn't it? It kind of steps out along the way. It does. So if you're going to jump from a high floor, you've got to kind of jump. Jump out. Yes, I'm not giving you directions on how to do it, and I don't suggest you do it. And you can't these days. There are glass walls and things up. So they put barriers up. She was one of the first to actually make it clear of all of those setbacks there. So they've installed wire fences, and, and in some cases there are glass walls around so that nobody can uh, can jump down. Um, Barry, the husband or the fiancé who was to be her husband, he went on to become an engineer and moved away, and he died in uh, Melbourne, Florida. Florida in 2007 at the age of 86 and he never married and Robert Wiles the photographer never published another photograph after that particular one so so much for being a photography student and Life magazine their caption on the photograph it just it just always I don't know like we're so careful now about the way we talk about suicide aren't we Absolutely. And it's interesting you say that because while you were talking about that, I was thinking that we need to mention that if you have those thoughts, if you have those tendencies, that you should definitely contact someone uh, who can help you or let someone know that Mm. you're not okay. Yeah. And those numbers, I mean, if you're in Australia, Lifeline, 13, 11, 14, Beyond Blue, uh, 1300, or there's a suicide callback service. One three hundred six five nine four six nine within Australia. Um, there are emergency services in any country that will help you out if you um, if you need help. But um, at the time, it was it was almost as though she had deliberately posed for. It was a glamour photograph. Life magazine said, at the bottom of the Empire State Building, the body of Evelyn McHale reposes calmly in grotesque beer. Her falling body punched into the top of a car. So there you have it, Chanel. The most beautiful dead body photograph ever. Would you want to be the most beautiful dead body? No, I would rather be alive. Yes, but if you had to be dead and someone took a photo of you, would you want to be the most oh, beautiful dead body? How would body? I want to look in my... Um, yes, I think so. I think I'd rather be gracefully... Grace, I, that's such a horrible thing to even think about. Gracefully dead. <laughs> Gracefully, Gracefully dead. I'm just wanted. I want to do a dramatic last breath on my bed in a hospital if I'm going to. Do you? And, and clutching someone's hand. That's I just I want, want people to be crying and screaming at my funeral. <laughs> do you? Yeah, I want people to fight. I want people that I hate to turn up so that my family tell them to leave, and I want it to be just a total scene of chaos <laughs> I'll arrange that for you <laughs> Thank I've got you. a friend who wants his funeral to be like Michael Hutchins's funeral do you remember there were just a succession of beautiful Models. blondes with their bosies out or yes. gently dabbing at their eyes and sobbing that's what he wants <laughs> even if he doesn't know them he just wants me to organize lots of sexy blondes that to could happen and mourn him <laughs> so I want to touch on something photography wise okay. actually and I'm not going to delve into him too much because I might have something for another episode on him where we can really get into him. But this photographer called Ouija. 
Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, so his real name is Arthur, I don't know how to say it, Felice, Felique, not sure. How's it spelled? F-E-L-L-I-G. F-E-L-L-I-G. Yeah, Felic, I'd say. Mm. Yeah. Well, he's called Ouija. He's known as Ouija, which comes from Ouija board. Ah, okay. That's where the nickname comes from. Now, he died at the age of 69 in 1968. Mm-hmm. So he was a photographer, but really he, I feel, probably started the whole crime scene photography. So what he used to do was, this is in New York again, your favourite city other than Melbourne, uh, and he developed this signature style of Listening to police radios, he was the only photographer that had a permit to listen to the police radio and he would try to beat police officers to the crime scene and then he would photograph the dead bodies. Does that still happen? Well, this is why I wanted to bring this up. I don't know if it, you know, we don't really try to beat police to crime scenes, but we do definitely, uh, you know, have our ways of finding out where crime scenes are and there are times where we turn up before. Um, How does that happen though? Is it the public? Yeah, it could be the public. The public might call in and say, oh, I've seen something or there's a single cop car down here and it could be before all the hordes of police and emergency services get down there. Um, But he would literally take these photos and he had a makeshift dark room in the boot of his car and he would develop the photos on scene to then sell to tabloid newspapers and magazines on the spot. Get out. Original paparazzi. Thrifty. Yeah. Really thrifty. So it's interesting that there is still that demand today. It was happening all that time, you know, but we're still sending out live shots now to get things obviously not as grisly as the photos he was taking. We're talking about murders where he was filming sort of gunshot wounds. You could see them quite clearly and that would they would be printed in the newspapers um, everywhere. Uh, which we would never do now. Obviously, when we see images now, we're going through them with a fine-tooth comb to make sure that there's no body parts that can be seen. Yeah. Um, So he wouldn't have had any pixelating equipment in the boot of his car? No, (laughs) no pixelating equipment. And he was self-taught. So, uh, And his photography really lives on. You can Google him, Ouija photographer, and it comes up with all these images. They're gross. They're they're, they're so gross. Mm. Well... I don't find them gross, but no, no, they are. And there's like there's a lot of shootings. I don't know if they're. Um, I'm sure the number of shootings is the same yeah. now or more. And there's a lot of blood. Yeah. Mm. Which is something that I'm quite used to. Yeah. I. I is it because they're in black and white? Like it looks more gross than. No, what it I looks feel that like gross in real life. <laughs> it does. Yeah. Okay. I All remember right. this time where. And I won't say specifics of the story because I think it could be insensitive to the family, um, where when we get to a crime scene and if we know that there's been a dead body, obviously maybe the body's not there anymore, I will often want to go to where the body was. Why? Just to get an idea of what that location looks like. Okay. Um, or we might want to film that area. And I remember this one time where uh, this woman had been murdered by a family member and dumped look at your face you're <laughs> freaking out and she was dumped it was kind of imagine a gravel car park yeah that is just a random gravel car park that you would pull off into off the side of a road right okay. it's just there um 
kind of a trail that leads down to a creek. Yeah. And we got there. It was still really dark. And I was walking around this area looking for where this possible site was where this body had been dumped and could not find it. And we were looking everywhere, walking back, walking up, walking back, walking up. And we were sort of walking over quite condensed grass. Aren't you trampling evidence at this point? There was no police tape. I should probably make that really clear. There was no police tape up. And if there was, we would not have gone I've seen so many of those shows. Like, what you're doing is wrong. I know. (laughs) There was no police tape. If there was, I would never go under police tape. But there was nothing. So that's why... If there was police there, it probably would have been a help because then we would have known where the crime scene was. But there was nothing. So we're walking back and then I think daylight breaks at about 6.30, 7 o'clock and I looked out of my shoes. Don't. What? Don't. They were covered in blood. (gasps) And it was because all the blood had settled in the condensed grass so you couldn't really see it. And then when the daylight broke... I realised that there were all these flies in this one particular area and all morning we'd been walking through where the body (laughs) had been dumped and it was really coagulated. Is that the right word? Coagulated. Confession. Uh, My first thought was... Please don't let them have been Prada. Where, what, <laughs> they weren't. This is one thing I learned as a crime journal. I always bought flats from Target or Kmart because they'd get so ruined and I could just chuck them in the bin. Oh, did, did you get rid of those shoes? Yeah, I actually yeah. did. And I went to Target in a local Target and bought $10 slip-on flats. Yeah. But we'd just been walking around in the area for ages. Oh. It was the low flies that got me. Yeah. Then I knew Oh, that's where that's and there where would have she been, was. was it, so if she'd only just been killed, there'd be no smell or anything? No, there. not at all. Nothing, no smell. Wow. I suppose they don't bother to clean up if it's in a, a public area or something like that. Like they would clean up after a body. Um, in a house they If it was would. in a house or something. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But in a public area, they might just wash it down. But that was kind of in the middle of nowhere. It was down in a secluded creek Don't area. ghouls like you, Chanel, I going know. and looking for it. Stomping around. Gross. Yes. Wow. I know. But going back to the photography. Oh, Ouija. Okay. We're going back got to Ouija. Could you ever do that job? No. You no. couldn't. No. My photos would be all, I'd be like holding the camera out, turning my head away and just clicking and hoping that somewhere on it would be the image. I couldn't look. I couldn't do it. But I have looked at his photographs and I will look at like two, three, four, six, okay, like 20. And then I'm just horrified and I start to think to myself, I'm going to have nightmares if I keep doing this. So I don't look anymore. And it makes me feel vaguely unwell in the tummy. Okay. Hmm. <laughs> if you've been listening, you know my point of view, so I, I can look through Way this thing for ages. But we'll put all. some photos up of his work yeah. on our social media so you can have a look because we'll probably revisit Ouija in a couple of episodes. Okie dokie then. Well, Chanel, let's put a call in now to our mate. He is a, a news reporter with Channel 9, has been around for a very long time. We'll call him a veteran. Brett McLeod. Hello. DD, Chanel. How I think veteran means old, doesn't it? Well, it means grown up and seen a lot of stuff. Yeah, legendary. Yeah, true. Yeah. That's me. So we want to ask you the question that we're asking uh, people who are going to respond to us here at our brand new Dead Bodies podcast. Have you seen a dead body? Well, unusually for a journalist, I hadn't for a very long time in my career. I managed to avoid it for, for two decades. 
but then when I did see a dead body, I saw thousands. Um, it, I, I'd never looked at car crashes or that sort of thing. I always actually deliberately steered away from it. But I had no choice um, after the Boxing Day tsunami when I was sent to Arche. And uh, you may remember that the first vision we saw of the tsunami in 2004 was from Thailand, where we saw those waves coming into the resorts, and it was shocking and incredible. And you know, the death toll was already in the hundreds and in the thousands. Um, and then we learned about Sri Lanka and other countries. Well, there was a big black hole, and that was, of course, the one area that was worst affected, but we just didn't know it at the time because they had no video cameras and they had no access to the outside world, and that was Archo. Um, where the waves hit first. So I went there, uh, I think, three days after the tsunami. And you can imagine the devastation was utter and complete. That's when I first saw bodies. Can I ask you, when you went there, never seeing a dead body before, were you prepared? Was it something that you'd factored in? Were you thinking about it on the plane? To be honest, I, I went with the mind of, this will be something like I've never seen before, so I just have to accept that. And I think that was, in hindsight, that was very wise because it was nothing like I've ever seen before and hopefully never will again. Um, it is, I mean, you'll know uh, that it is confronting the first time you see a dead body because you recognise something universal, that we're all humans. But when I saw, um, well, the first image was a, you'll have to excuse me, but it wasn't a particularly... It was fairly grotesque. Um, What was was it? It was driving past a... uh, Out of the airport, which was largely unaffected, it lost power. But as we headed towards Bandar Aceh, there was a field that was kind of like the size of a soccer pitch, roughly. And I saw a grader. The other ones they used to scoop up roadworks with a big, um, like, caterpillar Mm -hmm. thing at the front that holds dirt normally. It was loading, had a big load. It was tipping into a ditch. And I saw what it was tipping out was people. It was bodies, naked bodies. Um, and as we drove into town, I was sort of confronted with the fact that this is such, it was so obscene that they had to be buried like this, but they had no choice because of the fear of disease. And did that immediately um, change the way you felt about, and I say the story, even though these are people's lives, but did, did that really hit you? It took me a while to get my head around what I'd seen, to be honest, because mm. you don't, nothing can make you think, it prepare you for the fact that you are seeing dozens of bodies being dumped into a pit. Um, I guess it was more a short time later when I got to Bandar Aceh and it's with my colleague, then from a current affairs got there and it was standing on the bridge and the Aceh River had, was, was a torrent because, of course, the, the tsunami had sent a huge volume of water down it. Mm-hmm. Um, and every few seconds, another body would come past, literally a few seconds. And I remember seeing a child body with her arm out of the water and I thought of that poem, I don't know why, but I thought about that poem, Not, not Drowning, Waving. Oh. And of course, she looked like she was mid-wave. It, so mm. it was both heartbreaking and poignant, but it made me think, these are the people that I have to keep in mind when I'm writing my stories. Nobody heard him, the dead man, but still he lay moaning. I was much further out than you thought and not waving, but drowning. Poor chap, he always loved larking, and now he's dead. It must have been too cold for him, his heart gave way, they said. 
Oh no, 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 it was too cold always. Still the dead one lay moaning. I was much too far out all my life, and not waving, but drowning. Brett, can, did you recall how many people died as a result of the tsunami? Yeah, it was... Um, the death toll went up astronomically because when I first went there, we thought it was several hundred. Then it was going up in the thousands. Then it was actually going up in the tens of thousands every day. And it was only after I got back, after a couple of weeks, I think it was a few months later, but they, they finally put an estimate just in Bandarache and, and surrounding areas of Arche of around 200,000 people died. And does that... When that was happening, especially when you were seeing that little girl, does it just, I don't know, to me, I think I just want to instantly call my family and tell them that I loved them and that, you know, everything was okay. That would be my instant reaction. And you're a father, so that would have definitely weighed on you. Yeah, and I've got a daughter and I, you know, and I thought about her um, and I thought, but you know yourself, um, it's, it's hard when you're on the road because mm. you want to talk to your family, but when you're in such an exhausting position... Well, you need your energy for what you're doing, for what's in front of you. And it was, you know, it was arduous conditions. There was no pan, no water, no food. Not yeah. that we had anything to complain about. You focus on the job. And yet, yes, of course, you immediately think, I've got a family at home and I'm here. What am I doing here? But, you know, yeah. that's, that's your role as a journalist. Yeah. You're there to tell the stories of the people that can't. Brett, if they were, were, you know, using heavy equipment to move piles of bodies like that, do you think they'd just given up hope of identifying them? Yeah, they did. Um, interesting. I actually, for a moment, I got a bit angry when I was waiting to do a cross and um, I think Mark Burrows, my colleague from Nine, was in Thailand and he talked about um, people coming from the Australian detectives to the disaster victim identification teams going to Thailand identifying bodies so people could be reunited with those they'd lost. And I felt myself getting angry because I thought, well, that's good for those Westerners in Thailand. What about mm. the people of Indonesia who never had that opportunity? Um, of course, it's no one's fault. It was simply far too many people. And in fact, to give you an idea of how the scale of it, that field I saw where they dumped some bodies, mm. I went back a year later for the anniversary and they estimated that that field alone, there were 50,000 bodies. Oh. So there was never any chance they would be identified. Good heavens. And how hard was it, and this is something that I know I definitely feel as a journalist, uh, was it for you to convey what you were feeling and what you were seeing to your production desk back in Melbourne who have no idea what's going on, no idea what you're going through or what you're feeling at that time? Well, I guess the important thing to keep in mind is um, there's the personal side, but there's also the professional side. And you've, you've, got, to, you've, you've got to look after both. You've got to look after yourself personally. So I talked to the production desk about what I was seeing, what I was doing. Um, but I didn't want the story to be about me. Of course, it was about the people in front of me. So I'd walk outside and everyone there had lost... Not just someone. Everyone there had lost lots of people. Mm, so those are the stories I wanted to tell. Mm. And I just felt this big responsibility, more than any other story I've ever told, to do it properly, to do justice to the story. And that's, that was my beacon for the whole time I was there. It's, it's something that you'll carry with you forever, I feel, seeing those images and seeing those bodies is something that you'll never forget. Do you think about it yeah. very often, Brett, apart from when we ring you and make you talk about it? <laughs> Every now and again, certainly on Boxing Day, of course, mm. I think of the people who were not only lost, but the people who were left behind, who would grieve them. And I, I don't often think about the bodies. I don't envision them. I'm, I didn't have nightmares or anything like that. I know people that did. Mm. The one thing I do recall was when I got back to Melbourne, driving across the Yarra, 
and looking down and thinking, oh, there's no bodies in there. It's oh. clear. The whole two weeks, whenever I saw the Bandarajo River, I saw bodies. And this time it was clear. So I thought, I'm very lucky. I live in a country where I don't have to worry about seeing that sort of thing. Yeah. And I think as a journalist, you've done exactly what we all want to do is just you can't do anything to help. You really can't. And sometimes you just want to get in there and roll up your sleeves and help where you can. But then you remember you're just there to tell the story and to but do in reporting, them justice. No, but in reporting, it, it told the rest of the world the desperation of the people that had been left behind. Absolutely. And we were able to donate and help and, and give resources and support as best we can. So it was, mm. Brett, an incredibly important job you did. Thank you so much for talking to us. It's good to talk to you, ladies. Uh, aside, but by the way, aside from that, have you ever seen a dead body? Yeah, apart from that, I haven't seen many others, to be honest. Many? Um, I've managed to steer away. I think I saw one other in East Timor, and that's about it. Did it all in one hit. It's an incredible, that. incredible thing that you've only seen. You went through your whole journalism career without seeing any dead bodies, because obviously... As you know, I was the crime reporter for a while, so it was week in, week out for me. Um, but mm. you've done incredibly well to not see one for so long. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And uh, and I, my hats off to those who do it every day for a living. When you have to, you don't have the choice. You know, it's it's a tough part of the gig. Mm. Good on you. Thank you so much for talking to us, Brett. Brett McLeod, Pleasure. the Channel 9 reporter. Thanks, Brett. So, she's Chanel Vella. And you are Deedee Dunleavy. I am indeed. And we would like to hear your stories. Have you ever seen a dead body? Email your story through to deadbodiespodcast at gmail.com. Put your contact details in there. We might like to talk to you. We're all over social media as well. Facebook forward slash deadbodiespodcast. If you're looking for us on Instagram, it's the same, deadbodiespodcast. Or if you'd like to jump on Twitter, deadbodiespod. And we'd like to hear any kind of stories, serious stories, funny stories, anything about dead bodies. Gruesome. Dead Bodies is created by D.D. Dunleavy and Chanel Vela and produced by Kirsten Lim Howe. Contact us at deadbodiespodcast at gmail.com.